Podcast Revolution Network presents. The Way with Noah. Greetings and welcome to another edition of The Way of Noah. Thank you so much, you guys, for supporting the show and just hanging in there with me as I took a brief hiatus, uh, first traveling to Puerto Rico and then um, due to illness and, and family matters. But I am back and I have a great episode here for you. Um, I got a chance to finally sit down with Dr. Robin D'Angelo. For those of you who may remember, I mentioned uh, several different pieces by Dr. D'Angelo um, back during the summertime. Um, there is a piece that appeared in Yes Magazine uh, that she wrote, uh, 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 No, I, I Won't Stop Saying White Supremacy. Uh, Dr. D'Angelo talks about uh, white fragility, uh, uh, whiteness, and, 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 and other issues. And it's, it's a very refreshing, you know, body of work that she puts forward. It's not about shaming or, 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 or blaming. It's about helping people take accountability and ownership of their, 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 the way they engage in spaces. And so I really appreciated her taking the time to talk with me. I'm not going to do a whole long introduction, but this is our conversation Definitely click on the links, check out our articles. She has a book coming out later this year. Um, you know, Dr. D'Angelo, she has a, I have some links to the articles in the description, um, but just some really great work. And, and you know, that that's the best part, talking to good people, doing good work, who are really committed to engaging in honest dialogue about issues and the way we relate to each other in the world. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Robert D'Angelo. Thanks. Good afternoon, uh, Dr. D'Angelo. How are you doing today? Oh, hello, Ano. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, Happy New Year. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with me. Uh, I really appreciate your, yeah. your time and your contribution to the scholarship and to the work. Oh, thanks so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, so I wanted to just kind of get right into the conversation. Um, as I mentioned in our, our, our chat previously when we were trying to schedule, um, I came across your work uh, summer 2016, in the summer 2016, after there was some discord in some different, uh, you know, uh, online organizing spaces that I've been in. Um, and, and, and the issue came up in terms of working within with other so-called, you know, leftists or progressives, um, predominantly white leftists and progressives, and trying to get through certain issues that involved, you know, um, racial undertones or just claims of reverse racism. And in some of those conversations, we had issues with trying to really discuss the issue of, you know, white fragility and white privilege. And I came across some of your videos um, that were very, you know, informative and engaging. And, and then I, that later led me to some of your writing and stuff. And I started sharing those links with so many different people. And, and I just had to interview you to, to kind of sit down and have more of a conversation about you know, these concepts which have become like terms of art that we're seeing thrown around in different think pieces and stuff now, but they really are like concepts that, that, that need 
uh, some parsing out and discussion as as we you know continue to do our own individual work, but also look at the the the, the, the global landscape, so to speak, in, in in our political framework. Yeah, I mean, do you want to start with the concept of reverse racism? Yeah, so I want to so 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 well, actually, <laughs> I would like to actually I would actually like to start and ask you. How did you, with your own, because I was reading a little bit about your own background and your own work, how did you even come to studying whiteness? I graduated with a degree in sociology and was looking for work and applied for a position as a diversity trainer back in the early 90s. Um, and I really thought, well, of course I'm qualified. I mean, I'm a vegetarian, so therefore I'm not racist. <laughs> um, you know, I was your classic white progressive liberal uh, who thought, of course, I'm qualified to lead conversations on race and racism. It's really about open minds, et cetera, et cetera. And really, I was in for the most profound learning of my life on two really key levels. And the first one was that I was working side by side with people of color who were calling me in um, on my racism. And part of being white is that I could be a full, educated, professional uh, parent and never in my life have the experience of being called in by people of color or the opportunity to hear their perspective. Um, and that was like being fish, like a fish being taken out of water. And then the next thing is that I went into rooms day in and day out that were filled with white people and tried to talk about racism, um, usually with a person of color by my side. And often that person was the only person of color in the room. And yet white people would be complaining bitterly about reverse discrimination. And, you know, and just all of that started to unravel my racial worldview and understanding. Um, and the concept of white fragility just basically came out of trying to talk to my fellow white people about what it means to be white. So that's what that's what led me there. You know, as somebody who identifies as a feminist and, um, you know, I grew up poor and I, I could easily articulate all the ways that I had experienced oppression and had less than. But I had never <laughs> been called upon to articulate um, how I had experienced more than as a result of my racial position. And so for me, that was the most powerful learning edge, right? That that was what was challenging. It wasn't challenging to identify where I was a victim of oppression. But that, that came pretty easy. Um, and so for me, that's where that's that's the meaning of life for me is is that growth and um, to do the really hard the hard work, which is also the really exciting like kind of learning edge work. And as a white person, that is examining what it means to be white. And that's something that it seems like when we think about race discourse, right? Mm -hmm. We never think mm -hmm. about examining what it means, or rarely does anyone think about what examining what it means to be white, or or looking at the construction of whiteness. We may have a, a piece here and there randomly, but that never really seems to be a real conscious effort um, 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 in these conversations. And I like what you just said about how. It's not that you haven't had different forms of oppression, you know, in your life. And, and I appreciate that. Um, I, I lived in West Virginia for seven years and I was like, you know, it opened up my eyes. I was like, like, wow, you know, people have the same experiences. You know, we might have different racial experiences, but there are similar, you know, there are similarities on other levels. And yet there's still differences. And I think so many people get caught up in the fact that they have been oppressed on various levels, that there's no way that they themselves could be a part of a system that oppresses others. You know, when we talk about a system based on racialized 
um, oppression. How do you how do you help people or how do you you know explain that that difference there? Because you know it seems to be a struggle for some people to to understand and grasp that concept. Yeah, definitely, it is a struggle. Um, I I have an article that I wrote to speak to that specifically called "My Class Didn't Trump My Race." Um, I think if you asked anybody, would you rather be poor and white or poor and black? Would you know? It's pretty clear that the struggle would be amplified exponentially if you were also dealing with racism. So it, it doesn't mean that poor white people are not suffering from classism, but they are not also suffering from racism. And in fact, their whiteness will help them navigate their poverty. For me, the question that has um, always served me and never failed me is not, is it true or is it false? Is it you know right or is it wrong? But how does it function? So how does it function not to look at whiteness, right? Um, how does it function to always grant racialization to people of color, to give them the race work? We'll cover everything else. You can, you can cover race work. And when we want to have a racial perspective, we'll come to you. But, you know, for everything else, we basically are the objective norm. And so to not look at whiteness functions basically to hold racism in place and to protect whiteness, right? I think about the, um, I often use the example of Jackie Robinson, right? Um, because when you, you know, we talk about Jackie Robinson, we always say, you know, he did it. He was amazing. He broke the color line, right? And I have this image of somebody like running and, and kind of busting through this ticker tape, right? Like finally one of them had what it took to compete with us. Um, he was special, right? I mean, that's what that reinforces, that he was a special black person who was able to break through this barrier, Now, imagine if the story went like this. Jackie Robinson, the first black man that whites allowed to play Major League Baseball. Because it didn't matter how good he was, if we did not allow him to play, he could not play. If he walked out on that field, he would be removed by the police. Right? And think just think how powerfully that story changes and and how the telling of it functions. Um, to tell it the one way rather than the other way. And actually, I mean, and I need to hear it the way that it really is, which is white people finally allowed black people to play. Now, um, because, not because I need to be shamed in how bad white people are, but one, to be real about what it means to control the institutions, but also, like, who were those role models that made that happen? Right, and there were not completely altruistic. Let's face it, there was a lot of economic um, incentive into allowing uh, black people to play. But um, to not focus on whiteness protects it, protects um, institutional racism. Absolutely. And just thinking about that and, 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 and just even thinking about, like you said, the economic incentivizing in terms of, you know, the breaking of the color barrier, for example, like you used in, in Major League Baseball and subsequently other, you know, sports and other arenas. But when we when we think about having these conversations, right, and, and trying to 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 broach these subjects in particularly right now in progressive spaces, um, there is this notion that doing so is divisive. Or if you're calling out, you know, something based on you know whiteness or whatever, it's reverse racism, you know. Um, and and then it's just like there's so much time spent trying to deconstruct and have these little 
uh, micro level conversations informatively, which which unfortunately don't don't go over well because people aren't willing to get past the discomfort. Um, because it is uncomfortable if you if you feel like what's happening is singling you out based on race, but there's this other larger you know system at work that 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 needs to be addressed, educated about, and discussed so that we can all you know move forward um, into a better place. How do how do we how do we discuss and address the issue of reverse racism? Well, first of all, there's there's no such thing. There's they're just, by definition, racism is a deeply embedded system of historical, institutional, cultural, social power. Uh, it, it is not fluid. It does not change directions, right? And so I just, I mean, I hold that. I'm not, I'm not going to concede uh, or give away that there's any such thing as reverse racism. And what that leads to is, of why it's so hard to have these conversations and they don't think we can get to where we need to go as long as people are operating from the dominant paradigm. So the dominant paradigm teaches us that racism consists of individual acts uh, that are conscious and intentional and that only mean people do. And as long as that is your definition of racism, uh, it, it functions beautifully to protect racism. Because for me to make the following claims, all white people are racist and only white people are racist, that is an outrageous, those are outrageous claims to make if your definition of racism is conscious, intentional, individual dislike, right? And from that definition, of course, you know, again, I agree, not, uh, uh, those are claims that you that can't be made, right, saying that everybody's, all white people are racist and only white people. If you understand racism as a system, then you understand that if you are born and socialized into a society in which racism is the bedrock, of course you absorb racist worldview, racist patterns, and racist investments. Um, and, the, and the racial group that controls the institutions um, benefit from that setup, whether they choose to or not. And then it begins to make more sense to say, all white people are racist as a result of being raised in this society, and only white people are racist because we control the institutions. Everybody has race, racial bias. You have racial bias. And if you were mean to me based only on the fact that I'm white, that wouldn't be very nice and would hurt my feelings. I would not call it racism. I reserve that language um, to include the difference and impact between your racial bias and mine, because mine is backed by the weight of the entire society and the weight of history and always has been. So if we come back to that question of how does it function, you can see how beautifully it functions to define racism as individual acts of meanness. As long as that's how we define it, no, nobody's racist. I mean, there's a few. There's a fringe, right? There, I mean, certainly there's way more permi permission today to come out and be racist, but, um, but the average uh, white person is not going to see themselves as racist if they define it as, as such a, in such a simplistic way. And I, I think it was actually the most brilliant adaptation of racism post-civil rights is, is to reduce it to that just simplistic formula of good people versus bad people and conscious intentions. You made it, it made it virtually impossible to talk to the average white person about the inevitable absorption of racism. Um, 
and yeah, it, it, I think it's the root of virtually all white defensiveness because it became a, a matter of morality, right? Racists are immoral, and so if you if you suggest that something I've said or done is is racist or racist racially problematic. I'm going to feel the need to now protect and defend my moral character. So I need you to not think that what I said or done was racist because I need you to not think that I'm immoral. And and of course, I wasn't aware that what I said or done was racist. So I didn't mean to, so therefore it doesn't count. Um, and then we're in this vicious cycle of me needing to invalidate that it could possibly have been racism because I'm not racist. And now you're the bad guy. You're the bad guy because you slandered my character. Right. And and, and, and and we see that playing out like we've just already discussed earlier in terms of, you know, these spaces where there are, it's more than a faux pas, particularly when it's, you know, repeated in so many different circles by so many different people. It is something, like you were saying, that is socialized, that you can't possibly be racist if you value these different pr- principles, right? If you believe in equality for all, if you believe that, Everyone should have access to public education. You don't believe segregation is is right, you know, or you believe that these things happened so long ago and what happens now is just, you know, natural selection. People just choose to live where they choose to live and people have the jobs they just have without really understanding the way the system itself works. I mean, I think that people get caught up, like you were saying, in that I as an individual am a good person. I have black friends. My kids go to school with black children. So I can't have those feelings or opinions or values when it isn't solely just having those, that extreme, you know, uh, rhetoric that we may see coming from, particularly certain factions who have risen and become prominent now um, in, in, in current times. Um, I, I just want to shift slightly. It's similar. I wanted to shift. There was a piece that I read of yours this summer um, that got republished from the Goodman Project in Yes Magazine um, about uh, it's it's no, I won't stop saying white supremacy. And it's the same, but it's the same conversation we were just having about the way racism has has morphed into this concept of good versus bad. It's the same thing with that word white supremacy, right? It's only relegated for those extreme, extreme racist, um, anti everyone but white groups, the KKK, you know, you know, modern neo Nazis. It can't apply to anything else at all. And if you try to say that, then you're um, exaggerating or you're being mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I find it to be a, a very descriptive term, uh, white as um, the human ideal. Um, and it's very hard to move people forward who are operating from, you know, what, what we've been taught, which is, again, racism is these individual acts of intentional meanness. Um, but when I have some time, it's hard to do that in a three-minute exchange. But when I have the time to do the work that I do, like a three-hour workshop, I overwhelm people with undeniable images, um, the relentlessness of the message of white as the human ideal. Um, and, and once people see it, uh, they understand that it, they can't be unaffected by it and that it, um, it's driving our responses and our behaviors, whether we're conscious of it or not. So I'm talking to you right now. I have people in my life who I love and who love me, who are people of color. Um, and I'm also really clear that I have deeply internalized racist 
patterns and worldviews and that they that it comes out in in kind of funky ways um and it's and i want to put air quotes around subtle it's subtle to the white eye but they're they're very subtle um but i actually think that yes there's you know police executions and there's you know hate crimes but the kind of misery perpetrated on people of color day in and day out the kind of toxic hostility <laughs> that causes so many people of color to come home from work every day and just you know um need to check out is unexamined whiteness it comes out of white people's pores it's it's our arrogance our lack of humility our certitude you know that we live such segregated lives overall and yet we're so sure that we're not racist right um we're so confident to um, invalidate your experience and your perspective. We're so defensive about any suggestion that anything we do could be problematic. Uh, we're so oblivious. We don't listen. You know, those are the things that make um, people of color's daily experience so difficult. And I, I, I can imagine that straight up, you know, hate crimes are using the N word are, are horrible. But I've also talked to many people of color that say I would way rather deal with that than the everyday kind of unconscious racism exuding out of the average white progressive. And I, I would imagine that you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of like the dance is up. You know, I can't I can't tell white people how I, I try. And I should say I, it's so hard to convey how liberating and transformative it is it is to just start from the premise that of course you've been thoroughly socialized into a racist worldview just like let it go you have it and so you can stop trying to deny and defend and deflect and you can actually start trying to identify how it's manifesting in your particular situation so that you can stop doing it like that's actually liberating and transformative it's not terrible i i mean i'm not racked with guilt um i'm really clear you know i didn't choose this socialization but boy did i get it and i don't just like decide i don't have it because i don't want it and even even for all the work i've been doing for decades now to resist it to unravel it to challenge it every moment it's coming right back at me every moment i walk down the street i am being reinforced in whiteness as the human ideal um i'm being reinforced in subtle resentments right towards people of color um and i'm being reinforced in fear particularly of black people so i'm i'm talking to you right now but put me down the street and have me walking and have somebody pass me by that i don't know i'm going to have a fear reaction even before i can think about it all of that's there and it's and it's guiding my responses to things and we have to get past this idea that racist apparently can't tolerate even looking at people of color when you think about the evidence the average white person gives you for why they're not racist right what what is our evidence oh i have friends who are people of color uh i i, I used to live in new york city of course i'm not racist but it's like if that's your evidence then apparently a racist couldn't live in New York City and couldn't talk to people of color and couldn't have friends of color. And I can guarantee you that a good percentage of those people marching in Charlottesville have no people of color. 
and talk to them. I mean, it, it, we've, we've really got to look under the surface about um, what's, what structure of, of belief and understanding are we operating from? If that's my evidence that I'm not racist, what do I think racism is? <laughs> and then how does that function to actually protect it rather than challenge it? Wow. Yeah, that's a really good good way of conceptualizing it. As we as we look at the current state of things um, politically, we look at you know the current administration, and um, there has been this hyper awareness, at least in some you know, respects in terms of dealing with issues of white, right, of racism and white supremacy, but only on that surface level, as we've been discussing, not in this, this more, you know, deeper, uh, you know, uh, internal way that, that you've been discussing. How, how can we, you know, continue to drive conversations or help people, you know, really take looking at these issues uh, uh, more intently? Um, without it seeming like we're trying to put everyone in the same boat. I mean, obviously I can understand why people might be offended if if we're if, if they get compared to like a Donald Trump or a Steve Bannon, but there really are like like we've been discussing systemic issues, you know, based on um, you know, intrinsic uh, uh belief systems and socialization that that needs to be undone. Um we're not going to have the yeah. progress we're striving yeah. for if we if we, we can't dismantle these systems that exist. Um, and, and the sensitivity is just so thick in some space. Well, right. And then we go back to, and how does that sensitivity function? I actually think that sensitivity, which I'm going to call white fragility, functions as a, as a kind of racial bullying. I, I think I'm going to make it so miserable for you to call me in on my racism that you just aren't going to bother because you got to get through the day. I, I imagine that you, as, as a black woman, put up with way more racism on a daily basis than you bother calling in because it's not worth the agony of it. And that's what I mean. White fragility is an incredibly effective way to keep you in your place and to keep me in mind, to allow me, you know, you get too uppity and, I mean, I, I'm forgive me for using that phrase, but I, I'm trying to be, you know, and so it, it, it keeps the racial order back into my comfort zone. And my comfort zone is not to ever have to be um, called in on any racism, to be entitled to have things go the way that are comfortable for me. I mean, this need to be comfortable, like, are you comfortable on a daily basis? It's like, at whose cost is my racial comfort? Right. So white fragility just functions beautifully to uphold the racial order. Um, and so, I mean, you've asked a million dollar question, right? Like, how do we move this forward? Uh, for me, there are there are many, many strategies and we need them all. For me, trying to name it in a clear and accessible way, trying to put language to it, trying to make it visible. Right. And for a lot of people, naming white fragility has really resonated. Right. It's kind of grabbed their, you know, for for people of color overall, it's validated an experience and put language to something. But for white people, I think it kind of exposes something and I hope makes it harder to indulge in it. Right. Um, but one other piece of ideology is individualism. Right. Um, 
I actually, when I stand in front of a group of people, I say, I'm not going to grant any of you individuality today. I'm actually going to proceed as if I could know something about you just because you're white. And that right there is going to unsettle you. <laughs> but I, I can't. I am a sociologist. I'm quite comfortable. Um, there are things we can say that are general patterns as a result of our social groups. I think most of us would be comfortable saying that men and women get socialized differently. And we can fight it and we can resist it and we can challenge it, um, but we can't avoid it. And we don't avoid racial socialization either. And so we can talk about general patterns, right? Nobody, no, no boy grows up not knowing that to be a boy is different than a girl. And I would say under patriarchy that it's better, right? <laughs> that, you know, no boy grows up not knowing it's better to be a boy than a girl. That's how you socialize boys into being, into masculinity. Don't be feminine, right? Um, and I don't, I don't want to change channels because a lot of, um, a lot of white queer people or gender non-binary or white feminists will immediately grab onto to gender. I want to use it. I want to use it as an in, not as an out, right? So I don't know how any feminist, for example, white feminists can understand patriarchy and not understand white supremacy. And for me, fortunately, being an angry feminist, that's been really helpful for me to, to when I don't get a piece, when there's a piece of racism that I'm not getting, somebody's calling me in on something and I'm having a reaction to it, I'm feeling defensive. I just imagine that a man just said to me about sexism, what I'm thinking about saying to a person called about racism, and I, oh, got it, right? So like, oh, I don't feel safe, right? I'm sorry, but I don't think the, uh, any, any narrative about white safety in conversations about racism are legitimate. And uh, white people are perfectly safe in conversations about racism. We, we may not be comfortable. And all I have to do is imagine a man saying to me he doesn't feel safe talking about sexism with me and that, that that's so outrageous to me. <laughs> um, and that helps me say, okay, well, you're running the same thing to somebody else because when it, you may be on the down position on patriarchy, but you're in, in the up position in white supremacy. So um, I think we always have to use those intersections. This kind of gets back to something you raised earlier about, like, what about, you know, you've been, you grew up poor, or there's somebody, you know, Appalachian. I mean, that's real. But how do I use it to figure out, well, then how did that oppression set me up to collude with somebody else's oppression, namely racism? Because it did. It didn't exempt me. It didn't exempt me. I just learned my place in the racial hierarchy from a different class position than a middle-class white person learned hers. But I learned it. I, I knew I was at the bottom, but I always knew I was better than black people. I'm just going to say that. I was taught very clearly. <laughs> um so I, I had a lot of class shame, but we were always, we used race to kind of realign us with, with middle-class whites. I just think about the relationships. Like I said, I lived in West Virginia for seven years. I made friendships that I, you know, you think about stereotypes people that I made friendships with people that I never thought that I actually would make. And, you know, my kid, like I, I have children, my kids are teens now, but my, my, my kids play football and like, you know, we, 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 so I get what you're, I, I absolutely get what you're saying because I've seen it. You know what I'm saying? I, I've, I've listened to people who felt comfortable enough to talk to me openly um, say like, you know, we were taught or I was raised and it took so much time growing up 
or your family, you know, getting to know your family helped me understand that this, that I was raised to believe is not accurate. So, so I, I, I've seen people work through their socialization in real time, um, whether we've been in group dynamics in classes or like I said, just in social situations, um, at times being the only black family in our social circle living in West Virginia, you know? So, so I get what you're saying, definitely. Well, you know, you even think about miners, right? I mean, I don't know what would be a more exploitative job than being a coal miner, but who of that, who got the absolute worst jobs, right? Black coal miners, right? No matter what kind of level you're at, there's still that racial hierarchy. I think that's the question for white people who experience other forms of oppression. It, it, it's just so how did it set you up um, to collude with racism? For me... Growing up as a poor female, you know, I learned to be silent and kind of invisible. I was never affirmed on my intelligence. You know, I, I was taught to please and to avoid conflict. Well, those patterns actually set me up beautifully to collude with racism because I'm not going to challenge it. I'm not going to break with white solidarity. I'm not going to take risks. I'm not going to insert myself. And so actually to do this work has been a really fantastic way to heal some of that, the parts of classism that have harmed me, right? It doesn't deny where I've experienced oppression. It actually helps me recover from it and repair it, if that makes sense. Just thinking about back to what you were saying about the individuality, right? And not allowing people to take this as an individual. I personally am not this, so there you can't be saying anything right you know, just driving home that point about how if it's a part of a system, if there's a systemic issue or, or there's a systemic way that that racism is ingrained into socialization and just the fabric of society itself, you can't abdicate out necessarily. But it sounds like that there are affirmative steps and strategies that individuals can take by at least, like you were saying, naming it and acknowledging how they themselves exist within this overall system. Yeah, well, maybe I have two closing thoughts, and, and one is that kind of how do you know? That's what I that's what I like to offer to to white people who are so sure they're not racist. How do you know? Who are you accountable to? Uh, who who are you having kind of open, authentic conversations with? And if you're so insistent that you're not racist, and you have people of color in your lives, it, it's would you be willing to consider that you, you've conveyed to them that you're not open to hearing um, about the, the patterns and the unaware ways in which you're, you know, colluding with racism or stepping on their toes, right? That defensiveness actually um, functions to make it for a less, much less authentic relationship than it would if you were open. That's one thing. The other, the other piece is that I, I can say, um, that as a result of doing this work, I do less harm than I used to do. I still do harm, um, but I do less, and I have really good repair skills. <laughs> and, you know, less harm is really no small thing. That that could be a, one more hour on your life that you didn't spend agonizing about what, whether it was worth it to try to talk to me or whether you just said, you know what, I'm just going to take it home with me because i got to get through the day. You know, people of color... And black people in particular die at much higher rates of, well, everything, <laughs> but certainly stress-related diseases that I believe are connected to racism. So doing less harm is no small thing. Um, and that I can say that with confidence 
um, it is also no small thing, right? And I want to repeat that I, I step in it. I, I make mistakes. I hurt the people in my life. Um, I'm not going to be free of this um, in my lifetime, but certainly I do it less. And um, I, I actually have more trust as a result of um, being able to talk about those moments and, and repair those moments. So it's, it's, it's so rich. There's so much goodness in it. Um, I, I wish white people would kind of surrender to it rather than constantly resist it. Definitely. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. And I, I get that this is your work and in, in, in what you've studied and researched and stuff, but I still appreciate the way you articulate and are so thoughtful with this material. It's very easy to understand when you're, when you're talking about these concepts, so I really appreciate you. Thank you. Oh, good. Thank you. Yeah, I, I try to kind of explain it the way I came to understand it. So, yeah, thank you very much um, for the opportunity and for your courage and commitment.